Good morning. Powerful story of God's love, our longing for love. So really appreciate Lashina being willing to share a little bit. If you have your scriptures, uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis uh, chapter 2 in just a few minutes. But as you saw from the video and the songs we've been singing, we're looking at the idea of love today. This morning, we are continuing our series, uh, Created to Need. The goal of this series, the goals, I should say, of this series are initially to give us a deepened understanding of what it means to be human, why God made us this way. Also to establish that our core, at our core of our humanity is an innate creaturely instinct to need. And then also to explore how God is involved in our human needs, whether as the source or the giver or the one who fulfills those needs. And so in Gerald's introductory sermon on this series, he asked two questions. What does it mean to be human? And also, how does God factor into that question? And so looking at Psalm 104, he established that at the core of our humanity, And who we are as human beings is an innate creaturely instinct to need. Thus, the title of the series, Created to Need. Last week, then, he took us to the first need that we have as human beings, and that was dignity. We will also be exploring other human needs uh, related to purpose, peace, justice, life, and hope. And this just kind of gives us a reminder of where we've been and where we are going. This morning, we are going to, as I've already stated, to explore the idea of our human need for love. Now, I know some of you are coming into this sermon uh, hoping and thinking that I can solve all of your uh, relationship problems, which I appreciate that optimism toward me that you think I could do that. I don't know if we'll we'll figure all of that out uh, just in the next half hour, but... Uh, hopefully we can uh, get deeper into our understanding of what love actually is. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is just three basic ideas is look at love's beginning. And that is both in the divine life and the human life, looking at love's fall, and then looking at love's restoration. So let's read together, uh, if you have your scripture, let's stand together and read Genesis chapter 2. I'll actually start reading in verse 4. Genesis 2, start reading in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens, to every, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. As it relates to our need for love, the scripture is far from silent. There is so much in the Bible related to this idea of love. In the Old Testament, over and over, God's love is described as steadfast and abounding. Jesus even states that the two greatest commandments in all the world require one common denominator, love. Jesus said that there's no greater love than the one who would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that without love, we are nothing. Nothing. I thought of my, and even says that we are a clanging symbol if all we, if, no matter what we do, if all we ha don't have is love. I'm sure there are a hundred different ways that we can define love. When I talk about love throughout this sermon, though, I am talking about this in particular. The fulfillment, the commitment to the flourishing of another being. So again, full commitment to the flourishing of another being. That is what I'm talking about as I refer to love throughout this sermon. We might want to ask to ourselves, why does scripture place such a high role for love? As we have already seen in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says there is faith, there is hope, and love, and then says the greatest of these is love. Why does Paul say that without love, we have nothing? 
all of our human accomplishments, all wrapped up together, combined, all of our human accomplishments without love is nothing more than a clanging symbol. I thought for a moment that I would walk back and grab one of the drumsticks and just beat a symbol for like a minute. That's it. All of our even combined accomplishments throughout our lives, if collected together, is without love, it is nothing more than one of us beating on that symbol for a minute, whatever that means. I don't know what value that brings to you, a clanging symbol, just over and over and over and over. But that's all we're doing over and over without love. It's just clanging symbols. Love is not only crucial to human life, but also crucial to the divine life. Love is central because God is love. And as the ancient poets correctly stated, in God, in him, we live and move and have our being. So if God is love, it is no wonder that love is intricately connected to us since we, in him, we live and move and have our being. Surely we all have our ideas of what love is, what love looks like. We actually, I don't think, really even need to have a name for it to know we long for it. And so as the questions was posed to us at the beginning of the series, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? It means to be created to need love. It is not good to deny the need for love. Neither is it good to not understand the need for love. To deny our need for love is to run in the opposite direction of flourishing. And yet to not understand why we are compelled by the reality of love can lead us to coerce and oppress others in pursuit of such. So let's first look at divine love. In order for us to really understand why and how love factors into our humanity, we must first get a glimpse of the love seen in God, our creator. We may ask, as human beings, why do we have this longing and this capacity for love? Is there a particular reason why God invested this longing and this capacity for love so deeply into our human experience? Why did he do this? Simply put as a reminder, we are made in the image of God. At the very core of our being is a call to image forth into the world the one who made us. You could say it's our job, it's our vocation, it's our calling to image forth the creator. And that is what makes us unique as creatures, is that calling to image him forth in the world. And so if God is love, and we are made in his image, then it is no wonder that love is so deeply woven into our creaturely needs and capabilities. Our longing and capacity for love is directly sourced in our creator because God is love. 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 
I don't think love is simply a characteristic of God, one of many. Instead, when John says God is love, it's from his essence. The essence of God is love. And so it is no wonder that when he fashioned us and he made us, that we would be creatures who are so compelled by the opportunities that love presents us. The Apostle John states in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. And so let's go to the source. What is scripture's earliest account of love? Where do we see love first occurring in scripture? It's actually not in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. The earliest account of love we see is in a prayer that Jesus prays to his father. One of Jesus' prayers gives us a window into the love of God that existed before the foundations of the world. The Gospel of John records for us a prayer of Jesus to his heavenly Father in John 17. Let me read that for us. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Think of this phrase by Jesus as he's praying to his father. Jesus says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is our earliest glimpse we have of the reality of loves. And I'm sure in some ways, this is probably hard for our minds to fully comprehend. But if you wonder why we have such a deep longing in our own beings for love, here it is. Before the foundation of the world, before we were brought into existence, before anything we see around us was brought into existence, God loved God loved his son. This world was fashioned out of that source of love. Not simply, as I've already stated, as a characteristic of God, but coming from the essence of what it means to be God, to love. And we see love coming into our world then in Genesis 1. If this is the kind of God he is, and this God then creates a world, what does this world look like? Well, in Genesis 1, we read that God recognizes over and over that his creation is what? It's good. Over and over, he saw the works of his hands, the beauty and the work of his hands, and it was good. The light, 
It was good. The earth was good. The mountains and valleys were good. The seas were good. The beaches were good. The vegetation and fruit trees, they were good. The sun was good. The moon was good. The stars were good. All the sea creatures and winged birds were good. All of it good, good, and beautiful. This is according to Genesis 1. This all takes place from day one through day five, and everything that happened through day five was good. But then we come to day six. And when we get to day six, Genesis records that the creation again was good. God created land animals, land creatures, and and it was good. The first pronouncement on day six was, it is good. Then we see another pronouncement at the end of day six, and it increases. God sees the creation with, with humanity and says, it's very good. But did you know that before God saw what he created on day six was very good, he actually said something was not good. Did you know on day six, he made another pronouncement? We hear all the time about the pronouncements of it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. But did you know sandwiched on day six between it was good and it was very good, there was a pronouncement that it is not good. And this is related to God's creation. We actually don't get that middle pronouncement from Genesis 1. We have to go to the text we read this morning, Genesis 2. So the question is, what was actually not good on day six? What was not good? For a time on day six, Genesis 2 informs us that the creation was without a woman. Creation without a woman to God was not good. God created an amazing world, though. God created all the complexity and beauty of the world in which we see and experience today. Capture in your mind right now the parts of our world today that most astound you, whether you've been on mountaintops or beautiful valleys or a beautiful skyline or whatever it may be. Imagine even in the natural world all the most beautiful places you've seen. Not good. Not good enough, at least. The glory of God was not yet fully realized in simply the earth and the seas and its creatures and the birds and the vegetation and fruit trees. So then God, as we read, created land animals. And it was good, right? It was good, but not very good. So then God created a man, and instead of saying it was good, because the man comes now and the land creatures come, and instead of saying it was good, he sees the land creatures and he sees the man, he says, this is not good. And it's not a patronizing, oh, we need a woman to do some stuff. He really means this is not good. My glory cannot be fully realized. There is something missing. It was not until the creation of a woman that the creation was observed to be very good. 
You have the beauty of the natural world, you have the man, you have the land animals, and now you have the woman. And God can step back and finally rest. It now was very good. You may ask, why? Why was that the case? Why was it that as soon as the woman appears on the scene, that now creation is very good? It seemed to take a turn, right? You have days one through five. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's not good. And then it's very good. Why is that? What is it about the presence of the woman that makes the creation very good? It's this intricate connection between the glory of God and the love of God. There was something limited in love in the world when it was just between creatures and humanity. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for loving animals. I like animals. A nice Rottweiler. I can get love on a nice Rottweiler, all right? They're the best beast we have that we can manage. <laughs> My grandparents, when I grew up, bred Dobermans. Those kind of dogs, I could love a good Doberman. But there's something limited. There's something very limited. Even at the mountains, I have backpacked with my father-in-law numerous times at very high peaks and been totally astounded. But my love is limited. But you put in front of me the presence of another person. In Genesis, it's a woman that comes into a marriage. But put in front of me another person that I can love. And now the love of God can manifest the full glory of God in a way the creation was limited to do. Love now can be fully realized. Man to the natural world or man to the animal kingdom did not fully capture the glory of God because it didn't fully capture the love of God. Remember, love of God is not just a characteristic, it's his essence. These two individuals now, Adam and Eve also had the capacity to procreate and thus extend the possibility for love into other relationships, spouses and friends and children and on and on. The relationship between Adam and Eve becomes what we call marriage. It becomes this covenant of love. The covenant of love between Adam and Eve, or this marriage between Adam and Eve, continues on to this day. And clearly, in many ways, is a powerful example of two people committed to the other's flourishing. But I do want to add, while marriage holds out for all humanity a powerful display of two people fully pursuing the other's flourishing and committed to it. It is Christian love, as we see throughout scriptures, is not confined to marriage. It is not just for those who are married. The love of friends is not a second-class love. The love of children is not a second-class love. What makes love second-class is not the lack of a marriage certificate, but the deficit of full commitment. Christian love holds out for the church a beautiful, safe world in which all can be givers and recipients. There is no doubt that we see in Genesis that marriage becomes this example 
But we fail to disciple and manifest love if that is our only focus of seeing love within our church and in our community. Love extends much wider and deeper than that. And so as we see this, we can properly assume that love is just going to continue to flourish, right? Well, as we continue to read, we find a different story. We see love's fall. While love holds out for us our greatest sense of connectedness to God and to others, love also holds out for us our deepest wounds. That is why, as we even saw in the video, why we cry at the loss of what we call a loved one. We don't cry because they were functional in our lives. We don't cry just because they had certain gifts or talents. We cry because we loved them. Love also holds out for us the deepest wounds. And this is what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. The story of love takes a horrible turn in the wrong direction. Adam and Eve both disobey God's command. And when God comes to question Adam, Adam does the opposite of expressing full commitment to another's flourishing. Instead, Adam looks out for self. Adam is selfish. He puts the blame on Eve. Adam once loved Eve without hindrance. After compromising his relationship with God, he now is only committed to his own self and safety. Love's greatest enemy is not hate. Love's greatest enemy is selfishness. Is when the human heart is bent back toward itself. And that's where Adam's heart went after his relationship with the source of love was broken. When the relationship with God was broken, love was broken. Love is impossible without humility. Love is fundamentally self-giving. Then we get to the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, and we see the opposite of self-giving, but instead taking. Cain feels God's approval and love was unjustly directed toward his brother. And when Cain feels this disconnectedness, when Cain feels unseen or unloved, his response wasn't to serve, to give up of self, but instead his response was to take and to take the life of his brother. Cain did not deeply understand the power of his need as a human being for love and did not know how that need could go so wrong. There are two dangers in love. One is to deny its existence as if we don't need it. That's one. And to disconnect ourselves from people because that's where flourishing happens. One is to deny, but the other danger of love is to not understand the power it holds on us because it's so core to our being that when we don't get it, we go after it in selfish ways and then hurt others. This is what Cain did to Abel. Love got turned upside down. Cain was insistent that if he could not receive the love he wanted in the way he wanted it, then neither would his brother 
even at all costs. The fact is that love itself is woven into our being, but it can begin to pursue, we can begin to pursue love as a God in and of itself. And when the reality of love becomes the God, it's very dangerous what we can do and our capabilities to harm. Love can never be the God. Only God can be the God who is love. But we have hope. We have love's restoration. It is no wonder that the love of God is chiefly manifested through the sacrifice of Jesus. If, as I defined earlier, love was the full commitment to another's well-being, then there is no greater expression of love than God's delivering his son to us and the son's sacrificing of his life for our life. The life of Jesus is the perfect manifestation of the full commitment to another's well-being. That's why John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So a sweeping statement. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Why did God send his son into the world? That we might have life. That all the deteriorating ways, deteriorating ways that we actually now live out love, we can have forgiveness. We can have restoration. We can have life. It is no wonder that the Son of God is free to extend love to humanity because the foundation of love was between him and his Father. As we go to see this love restored, we must understand, I think as we look, as we see love, the command of marriage in Paul and Ephesians 5, we see these callings of wives to submission and humility and husbands to love what Paul is doing there is not using those categories as an opportunity to create differentiation in power and hierarchy. Paul is not saying one has to do submission and humility and the other love, thus now you know who's in higher on the totem pole. That's not what Paul is saying. If we think Paul is saying that, then we've never really understand what love is in the first place because you cannot have love without humility. You cannot have love without submission. If you're going to genuinely be full, fully committed to the well-being of another person, then you cannot have love without humility. We have this reciprocity in relationships of submission and humility and love. You can't have one without the other. If a husband or a wife is holding over some kind of role over another You've lost love. Love did not compel Jesus to be able to say, I just have the final say now when we disagree. Love compelled Jesus to offer up his life. And one of his chief characteristics that we see, and Paul explains in Philippians 2, is he, 
was equal with God, but did not count himself equal with God, but gave himself up. Does love compel us to give up of ourselves? This connection, lastly, as we look at love, we are compelled then. The scripture does not let us just be recipients of love. There is a deep connection to love being extended from us. That's why John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I guess the question I have for us, is that how we're known? Love holds out for us that God the Father through God the Son was fully committed to our well-being, to our coming back into full relationship with him, that he was willing to go at whatever it costs. Do we have that kind of love in the church? I know it sometimes, whether fair or not, becomes a characteristic that the church is the one place where society feels barred from. Would we ever be willing to give up of our interests for the interests of others? What does it look like for the church as a community to collectively consider the interests of its local community? Full commitment. What would that look like? But instead, oftentimes... We have requirements upon people on what it looks like to be involved in our community, to partake of our goods and our services, partly because we don't look through the lens of our creator. Our creator looks through the lens of love. We look through the lens of difference. One of the things that we're so chiefly wired to do is to see difference first, and difference usually means wrong. Oftentimes, when we're in conversations, whatever it may be, it could be racialized conversations, political conversations, parenting conversations, whatever it is, when someone has a difference of opinion from us, our usually knee-jerk reaction, antithetical to love, is why that person's wrong. We're just waiting to listen till they're done so we can come back with what we want to say. But when have we thought about when there's disagreement to say, maybe I misunderstood something, maybe I'm wrong on something, and now I'm going to return with a question. That's love. That's love. When you disagree with someone to return a genuine question, not patronizing quietness just so you can prove them wrong in another minute. This is what we are called out for us, is love. And we can have the greatest worship services, the greatest ministries, but if we don't have love, we have nothing. I know it's super cliche to say that all the problems of our politically toxic society right now and racialized society right now should just be easily figured out in the church, but it should. It should. I know it's too easy just to say this is the place where this should all have place for love, but it really should. It actually should. And we shouldn't try to avoid it just because we say it's too cliche. We should lean into each other's differences and listen if you want a good gauge on whether you're loving, if you're fully committed to the other's well-being, find out in the conversation if you've listened more or talked more. Are you really seeking to understand why someone comes from a different perspective? This 
place, this church, all churches who are looking to extend the love of God should fundamentally be known as the most hospitable place on earth. We have nothing to lose. (laughs) We have nothing to lose. We have the love of God. The only thing we have to lose is others around that don't know the love of God. (laughs) And the thing that keeps us from welcoming is our inward bent on ourselves. Do you know that it's not only individuals that can be selfish and bent in on themselves, but institutions and systems can be bent in on themselves too. Our system, our institution of Calvary can function in a way where we're turned in back on ourselves. If that's the case, let's be okay with saying we're sorry. We want to repent of our selfishness. Let's be okay with not being perfect. We are not going to perfectly love. But in repentance, we can look to grow, to be open, that our churches, our homes can be known as places of hospitality and love and welcoming. Love requires relationships. Love requires relationships. You can't just do acts of love toward random people. That's nice. That is nice. And I don't want to diminish any nice deeds. (laughs) I'm all for nice deeds. But love is different. Love is different. Love is the full commitment to another's well-being or another community's well-being. So love requires relationships. All at varying levels, no doubt but relationships nonetheless. Love requires humility. Love requires a willingness to prioritize another's flourishing. The deepest of love is covenantal, is committed love. If you demand independence, you'll struggle with love because love exposes There's no doubt we all bring a variety of good and painful experiences as it relates to love. But hopefully the church, at least Calvary Memorial Church, can be a place of healing, of growth in love. It's hard to love on social media, right? It's hard. Why? Because it fundamentally removes the embodiedness that we so long for. I don't really actually long for a nice tweet or Facebook post about me. What I really actually long for is eye-to-eye contact of affirmation. That's what we long for. That's love. You can't be committed to me by liking my status. That's not commitment. We have to lead the charge as God's people who are made in his image, the charge of love. This was fundamentally Dr. King's greatest call. And we ought to honor that call and that labor to love. And I pray that that's who we would be known as, both in our homes and our churches May this be seen as a place that is so rooted in the source 
that God is love, that we are committed to others flourishing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we are humbled by your mix of power and compassion. We are humbled by your mix of authority and humility. As scripture refers to you, you are the lion and the lamb. At your very essence, Father, is love. And you've shared that love with us through your son. And so we thank you for that. We pray that we as a church will not only be, take seriously that we receive your love, but take serious our call to be conduits and ambassadors of your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name.